Welcome to Ragbag's Bonus Bag. My name's Frank Burton. Part 2 of the audiobook serialisation of Getting Away With It, the second in the Ragbag Books series. Let's get stuck straight into it. Chapter 8 It wasn't until Jenna had gone that her whole ridiculous story properly took shape in my mind. I realised there was so much she hadn't told me, and so much that still didn't make any sense. Where had she got the idea to write the book in the first place? How did she manage to hide the whole fiasco from her parents? At what point did Jenna disown her parents as she'd previously claimed? Was it before she went travelling around the world for three years? What happened during those three years of travelling? We'd need at least another night just to talk about that. If this were anyone else, I'd happily accept and then I went travelling around the world for three years as a neat little end to the story that didn't require further detail. But I realised that the more I talked to Jenna, the more I wanted to know about her. I'd never felt like that about anyone before. I wanted to know everything about her. The whole thing was making me dizzy. I needed to lie down and go to sleep, but I still had to finish my shift. I tried a couple of pages of The Great Gatsby, but couldn't focus on it. I'm sure it was a classic or whatever, but it was nothing compared to the real-life collection of stories that had been sitting across from me for the last few hours. The following night, I had a scheduled catch-up with my manager before I started my shift. Everything was fine, apart from the fact that one of the maintenance men, who'd been popping in and out all week, had spotted Jenna sitting with me for the last two nights. Sorry about this, Frank. I'm sure she's doing no harm, but your girlfriend can't come and visit you at work. Security and all that. That's fine, I said. She's not my girlfriend, though. She's my sister. I honestly don't know why I said that, but there you go. When my manager had gone home, I called Jenna. She answered for a change. How's it going, Frankie? She said. I was just coming over to see you. Actually, that's why I'm calling, I said. I've been told that you can't come and sit with me anymore. Company policy. That's ridiculous, she said. What harm am I doing? My boss said exactly that. I'm sure she's doing no harm. Well, that's annoying. I suppose it would be different if I was a guest at the hotel. Yes, of course that would be different. See you shortly then. You what? The line went dead. Half an hour later, Jenna was standing at my counter with a beaming smile on her face. I thought I told you, I began. I'd like a room, please. Standard double. Smoking or none, I said. Jenna pulled a cigar from her handbag and stuck it between her lips. Well, that answers that question. £45, please. I wish I could offer mates rates. It's okay. She handed me a credit card. I'll also get a double vodka and orange from the bar, plus one for yourself. Not while I'm on duty, but thanks for the offer. After your shift? Yes, I always appreciate a couple of shots of Smirnoff at 7am. Ah yes, point taken. Well, I'll just pop up to my room and have a smoke. See you in a bit. You'll need the key. Oh yeah. It's room 106. She took the key card and headed off to the stairs. I might need another one later as well, she called over her shoulder. Another what? I called after her, but she'd gone already. 
Twenty minutes later, another guest arrived. He was wearing an immaculate navy blue suit. It looked like he'd been to a conference and had his name label left on. His name was Rolf Valentine. Hello, he said. My partner already checked in to room 106. Would I be able to take another key? Uh, room 106, I said. Are you sure? Booked under the name Jenna McIntyre. Oh, that's room 106, I said. Right, yeah. I was thinking of a different room 106 in a different hotel. Are you all right? Rolf Valentine asked me. I coughed. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, absolutely fine. Here's your key. Also, I forgot to serve your partner her drink earlier. Can I get one for you too? I'll take a bottle of House Red, if there is such a thing, said Rolf Valentine. Coming right up. It's Frank, right? He said. What? You're Frank, he said. You must be, it's on your name badge. Also, Jenna told me all about you, and you're just as she described. Really? Yes, really. Well, you must be Rolf Valentine, I said. It says so on your name badge. Also, Jenna's told me absolutely nothing about you. Oh, I'm not surprised, said Rolf Valentine. I'm kind of a secret. You can keep a secret, though, can't you, Frank? Yeah, I said. It does sound like Jenna has described me well. Could I get those drinks? Sure, one moment. I returned a minute later with the drinks order on a tray. Thanks, he said. It's very nice to meet you. I'm sure we'll meet again. I wasn't sure how to respond to that, so I just let him go. I sat down at my desk with my copy of Gulliver's Travels, but couldn't manage to focus on it. I just wasn't sure what I was supposed to think about what had just happened. It was, at the very least, interesting to have met Jenna's mystery married man. I had, after all, remarked to myself earlier on that I wanted to know everything there was to know about her. Well, here was another piece of the puzzle. He actually seemed like a nice guy. I'd always tried never to judge people at face value, but wealthy people were the one group I'd always struggled not to immediately dislike. Perhaps I'd never met anyone who was properly loaded before. Rolf Valentine just seemed like a regular person. Was I concerned for Jenna? Was I worried that this guy was exploiting her in some way? He looked to be about 20 years older, if that meant anything. I wasn't concerned for Jenna. If anything, I was concerned for him. Was I jealous of him? It's true that I wasn't attracted to Jenna in that way. But what if I turned out to be one of those people who can't handle someone stealing their friend away from them? Clearly that's not what Rolf was doing. From what Jenna had said, I got the impression that he had no intention of leaving his wife. Something else had surprised me about Rolf. It took me a moment to realise. But then, when I replayed our conversation back in my head, there it was. Rolf knew who I was. He knew I worked at the hotel. I was exactly as Jenna had described. The reason I was surprised by this was that I'd always assumed the two of them met up for sex before Rolf raced off back to his wife. It turns out they actually talked to each other. Jenna had taken the time to tell him about her new friend. What else had she told him? Did he know all that stuff about the murder book? I tried to read again, but couldn't. So I cleaned some tables in the empty bar and vacuumed the spotless carpet. I spotted Rolf Valentine 
buzzing himself out through the entrance doors a couple of hours after he'd gone in. I was half expecting Jenna to come down for a chat, but she didn't appear. Must have fallen asleep. She was still in her room when I finished my shift. I went home and fell asleep. I dreamt that I'd been in the room with Jenna and Rolf that night, but they hadn't noticed I was there. The two of them sat on the bed, Jenna puffed at her cigar, while Rolf knocked back the wine straight from the bottle. They played snakes and ladders for two whole hours. All the while, Jenna was telling him stories about her childhood. And now I was jealous. That night, when I arrived for my shift, Jenna was waiting for me in the reception area with a drink in her hand. There was a party going on in the bar, which apparently was something that happened from time to time. There were a couple of extra staff on to meet the demand. The place was packed out. Someone had put on a CD compilation of indie pop tunes on the stereo and a few people were dancing. Sales conference, said Jenna, nodding to the crowd. I was lucky there was a room left. These lot have got most of them. You're staying here again tonight, I said. She nodded. I thought I'd come and spend some time with you, Frankie. I met your boyfriend last night, I said. Yes, I know. Sorry about that. He called me straight after you called, saying he was free for a while. I told him about the hotel. I realised that was probably a bit weird. It's okay, I said. He seems like a nice guy. It's just me in that room tonight. I wondered if that was supposed to be some kind of invitation. I'll just go and get set up at the desk, I said. I took my coat off and hung it up in the back office. Then I got roped into helping out at the bar. The orders kept on coming, so I was there for quite a while. I spotted Jenna dancing with a group of drunken sales reps to Blur's Park Life. She noticed me watching and winked like she was on some kind of secret mission. Eventually the crowd died down. We closed the bar at midnight. My co-workers went home and the salespeople staggered off to their rooms. Now it was just me and Jenna sitting at a table together, close by to the reception desk so I could hear the phone if it went off. You know, I've been thinking about this plan of ours, she said. You know, where we hold historic buildings hostage. Your plan, I said. But you have to be my inside man, she said. I figured out a foolproof way of ensuring you wouldn't be treated as a suspect. I was going to object, but I thought I'd humour her. Tell me more. Let's say you were employed as a tour guide at Skipton Castle. Why Skipton? It's fairly local and it's just an example. What I'm saying is you'd have access to all areas of the castle grounds. You could easily take a series of pictures of strategic areas, photocopy some documents, that sort of thing, just so we can create the impression that we have an actual inside map. What do you mean create the impression? I mean, once you've gathered these details, you can leave the job. We'll wait a few months, then it's all systems go. How could anyone ever suspect you of being the inside man when you left the job ages ago? Right, I suppose that makes sense in principle. It won't just be me and you, by the way. I'll recruit a whole crew, each with a different role. But the less you know about that, the better. You'll never meet any of these people. They won't even know what the plan involves. They'll be hired hands. The fewer people know the plan, the better. So how many people will be aware of the plan altogether? I said. Just me and you. You haven't told Rolf about all this? 
Jenna laughed out loud. <laughs> of course not. He'd say I was completely insane. He might even say, if you want a million pounds, I'll sort that out for you. Even though I've always made it clear that I want absolutely nothing from him. No gifts, no handouts. Right. What's the problem with that? Nothing. I just got the impression that you and him talked about everything. Why? Because I told him about you? Maybe. I only talk about safe subjects, Frankie. That's the relationship I have with him. He thinks that I have the perfect life and I kind of play up to that. So whenever something good happens to me, I tell him about it. I won't tell him about how the three-strop plan is working out, but I will tell him about you. That's nice, I said. It is, isn't it? The opening chords to Getting Away With It by Electronic came on and we both realised at the same time that the compilation CD was still playing. I love this song, she said. One of the best pop songs of all time, I agreed. Pop, she said, with a look of distaste. That's what it is, I said. This is what pop music is supposed to sound like. Frankie, she said, would you like to dance? Really? It might be fun. I'm not much of a dancer. It's easy, you get the hang of it. Anyway, no one's watching, just me, and I don't care what it looks like. Hmm, I said. I realise you're blind to these things, she said, but there's actually a certain level of sexual tension between us. But we can't burn it off through sleeping together or even kissing. We can dance together, though. I don't feel any tension, I said. I don't feel tense at all. As I say, you're blind to these things. Come on, we've missed half the song now. I popped to the other side of the bar briefly to start the track from the beginning. I turned up the volume a couple of notches. I stepped back into the bar, took Jenna by both hands, and we danced. We both knew all the words and we sang them to each other. I can't reproduce any of them here without the risk of being sued for copyright infringement. What I can say is, at that moment in time it seemed like the most meaningful song I'd ever heard. Jenna was right, there was something between us that wasn't just friendship. I have no real way of explaining what that something was. Whatever it was, it was real, and it was right there, buzzing from her to me and back again. And then something ridiculous happened. Of all the ridiculous things that are yet to happen in this book, and trust me, there are a few, this for me is the most unbelievable part of this story. Even though it happened, just as I'm about to describe, a part of me doesn't want to mention it because it seems more than a little contrived. But I've committed myself to being honest and recounting each small moment of this story as it happened to the best of my recollection, so here we go. You'll write about this one day, she said. Stop saying that. You will. This will be an important moment in the book you're going to write about you and me. Oh, so it's a book now, is it? It will be. As a matter of fact, this will be such an important scene you'll call the book Getting Away With It. Because that's what we're going to do, you and me, Frankie. We're going to get away with it. Not a bad title, I admitted, but still, how do you know all of this? I don't, she said. Like everyone else who claims to know everything, I'm just making it up as I go along. 
I didn't say anything else. I stopped dancing and wrapped my arms around her. I held on to her tight until the end of the song, whispering the chorus into her ear. Chapter 9 A few weeks went by. I settled into my new routine of work at night and lectures and sleep during the day. Jenna got into the habit of visiting me one night a week, booking a room each time. Sometimes Rolf Valentine would turn up, then leave in the early hours. Sometimes he'd stop by my desk on his way out and talk to me about English literature, a subject on which he appeared to know lots about. He gave me a bunch of recommendations for books that weren't included in my course. He said it was a shame English universities focus so much on Anglo-American realist traditions when there was Kafka, Mann, Kundera, Borges and Dostoevsky. I took his advice and checked out some of his recommendations from a library, starting with Notes from the Underground and The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Your boyfriend knows his stuff, I told Jenna. These are really incredible books. I'm a good judge of character, she said. What does he do for a living, anyway? He works for an investment bank, she said. That's as much as I know. I was going to say, he's not your typical banker. But then I stopped myself, realising I wasn't sure what that meant. In November, it was my 19th birthday. I'd left home two months previously and had had no contact with my parents whatsoever. It didn't even occur to me to get in touch with them. Clearly, they felt the same way. I was quite happy with this arrangement. I wasn't upset with the way they treated me. I was happy to be rid of them. Quite unexpectedly, my dad turned up at my halls of residence on my birthday at 10am. I'd been working the previous night and had just fallen asleep. One of my fellow students knocked on my door and called through the wood. Hey Frank, your dad's here. No he isn't, I called back. Well, it's a bloke who looks a lot like you. Oh. I got out of bed and opened the door. Hello Frank, said my dad with a big beaming smile. Alright, I muttered. Let me get dressed, I'll meet you in the kitchen. Happy birthday. He said. Thanks. Five minutes later, I found him sitting at the table in the communal kitchen. He'd helped himself to a bowl of someone else's cornflakes. Forgot to have breakfast, was his explanation. OK, I said. I can't stop for long, he said. I took the morning off work. I need to drive back soon. Talking of driving. He reached into his pocket and tossed me a key. It hit me in the face. Ow! Whoops, he said. It wasn't supposed to go like that. What do you think? About what? Your birthday present, Frank. I bought you a car. I smiled for the first time since he'd arrived. Oh, really? I said. Oh, thanks, Dad. I wasn't expecting that. That's the nature of surprises, I suppose. He grinned back at me. Let's go and check it out, eh? We walked down the corridor to the car park. How are you planning on driving to work? I said. You must have driven the new car here. No, he said quickly. 
I brought a friend with me. He's gone for a walk. Right. We stepped outside and there it was. Wow, I said. It looks brand new. It is brand new just about. A couple of years old. And you bought it outright? He nodded. I've been saving up. I'll pay the tax as well. You just need to get your own insurance. That'll be fine, I said. I've got a job in a hotel. Sounds good, he said. Listen, Frank, I've really got to get off now. So I'll go and find my friend, wherever he's got to. Well, it was nice to see you, I said. I'm still in shock a little bit. You don't need to be, he said, getting serious all of a sudden. He looked me right in the eye and said, You're my boy. You're the only one I got. It's only right that I buy you a car on your birthday. I appreciate it, I said. And listen, he added, stay away from drugs and troublemakers, okay? I will, I said. He turned to leave, then turned back. Oh yeah, he said. Don't tell your mum about the car. She doesn't need to know about it. Okay, I said. And then he was gone. I was going to take the car for a test spin, but I was likely to fall asleep at the wheel. I went back to my room and fell asleep. The car key was still in my pocket and it was digging into my leg, but I couldn't be bothered removing it. At 11am, there was another knock at the door. Hey Frank, there's a guy here for you. Does he look like me? I said. Uh, not really. What does he want? Something about a car, I think. Oh, I opened the door. He's waiting for you in the kitchen, said my friend. I found the young man examining the safety notice on the wall. Can I help you? I said. Hi, said the man, a little awkwardly. Um, I work for your Uncle Claude. He said he's sorry he couldn't be here in person and um, happy birthday. The man handed me an envelope and a car key. Listen, mate, I said, I'm not sure what's going on, but there's a note from him too. It's in the card. I tore the envelope open and examined the scrawled message inside. I couldn't help hearing it in my Uncle Claude's voice. Happy birthday, Frank. I know this is none of my business, but it concerns me that your mum and dad have done very little for you in recent years and have probably forgotten what day you were born on. Please do keep this a secret, as I'd prefer it if your dad wasn't aware of me getting you this gift. I'm sure you can understand. Take care, my good man, and safe driving. What else could I do? I accepted the gift and told the young man to tell Uncle Claude I really appreciated it. I decided to sell both of the cars. Jenna came along and did my haggling for me. She was very good at that. We came away with a total of £9,000. How are you going to spend it? She said excitedly. Sounds boring, I said, but I think I'm going to move out of holes and get my own flat. I keep getting woken up during the day and it would be really nice to have my own space. 
so that's what I did. I moved into the flat that would end up being my home for the next two decades. I even managed to get a partial refund on the accommodation fees which were paid up to the end of the semester. Now I had some proper money in the bank and with all the hours I was working at the hotel my savings were getting bigger each month. I didn't know what I was saving for exactly. I just wanted to be totally self-sufficient. I didn't want to have to rely on anyone financially ever again. I certainly wouldn't be tempted to take a castle hostage anytime soon. I returned briefly to my parents' house on Christmas Day, not because I particularly wanted to. A strange combination of guilt and curiosity drove me there. Buses weren't running, but I managed to get a taxi, costing twice the usual fare. Good job I was doing well for cash. I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I knew there wouldn't be much going on. The days of my mum serving up turkey and nut roast were long gone. Still, I wasn't quite expecting what I found there. No decorations, no cards. My mum was sitting alone in the living room, drinking a glass of gin and reading a book. Oh, hello, she said, not looking up. Is Dad around? I said. He's probably spending time with his friend, she said. I sat down opposite her. Good book, I said. Yes, she replied. Goggles, dead souls. Great, I love the Russians. I've got really into them lately. Just finished War and Peace. I was supposed to be sticking to the reading list on my course, but I got kind of distracted. Remind me, she said, what are you studying at university? English literature, I said. Right. I'm enjoying it, I said, but in a way it's a shame they focus so heavily on the Anglo-American realist traditions. Why do that when there's Kafka, Mann, Kundera, Borges and Dostoevsky? All men, my mum muttered. What do you mean? I'm just saying don't forget your Sylvia Plath, your Gertrude Stein and your Iris Murdoch. I was tempted to say, yeah, but they're all white. But that seemed a little petty. Instead, I said, thanks for pointing that out. I'm still figuring out what's what. Hmm, she said, returning to her goggle. We sat there in silence for a while, then I called another taxi. I jotted my new address down and pinned it to the crowded cork board in the hallway. To be fair, that was the best conversation I'd had with my mum for a long time. Still, I had no desire to go back there. Maybe I wouldn't bother next Christmas either. On my 20th birthday, my dad turned up at my new flat at 10am in the morning. He'd bought me another car. My God, I said, thanks, Dad. You really didn't need to do that. Nonetheless, that's what I've done, he said. What'd you do with the other one? I sold it, actually, I said. Smart move, son, he said. Money in your pocket. Why drive when you can take the bus? Sell this one as well if you want. It's your property. Thanks. Anyway, speaking of getting the bus, I'd better be off. Got to work. I can give you a lift if you like. You don't want to be driving your old man around on your birthday, he said. You enjoy yourself. 
Okay, well, it was nice to see you, as brief as it was. We'll have to have a proper catch-up soon, he said, as though he'd only just realised the two of us were barely on speaking terms. In the meantime, his eyes flitted from left to right as he worked on selecting another epic slice of fatherly advice. This went on for a while. Eventually, he settled on Always use protection. With that, he was gone. There was a strange sense of inevitability when at precisely 11am another car pulled up outside. I recognised the driver. I stepped outside to greet him. He shook me by the hand. Happy birthday, Mr Burton, he said. Thanks, I said. He handed me the car keys and an envelope. This time the card said, I thought perhaps we could make this an annual thing, Frank. I have money to spare, and you're a young man making your way in the world. Let's keep this a secret from your dad again. I'm not doing this to shame him in some way for being such a useless parent to you, but I'm sure you can understand it's a little awkward. Many happy returns, Uncle Claude. Twelve months later, I finished my degree and was still working in the hotel. Instead of working on my essays during my shifts, I was trying to write a book, which wasn't going particularly well. But at least I was enjoying myself and doing what I wanted to do. Writing wasn't going to pay the bills yet. Maybe it never would. In the meantime, I had an easy job and a straightforward life. On the morning of my 21st birthday, my dad arrived at 10am in another new car. I hadn't seen him since the previous birthday. I told Claude I was getting this for you, he said. Apparently, he's got one for you too. Double whammy, like the candy floss machines all over again. I'll be honest, I said, Claude gets me a car every year just like you do. I'm not supposed to tell you that. My dad burst out laughing. He patted me on the back and said, Whoa, (laughs) are you the cat that got the cream, eh? You've done well for yourself there, Frank. Then he went all serious and looked me in the eye and said, Don't ever change. Then he left. At 11.30am, Uncle Claude's employee arrived. There must have been traffic. This time, Claude's card read, Enjoy your birthday, Frank. You're only 21 once. It's come to my attention that your dad has also been buying you a car every year, which I was a little surprised about, and while I don't blame you for not telling me, perhaps we'd better make this the last of my big birthday gifts. Drive safe, Uncle Claude. Chapter 10 Jenna came along and helped me sell the two cars again. We got a whole ten grand this time. I said I was thinking of spending the money on a holiday somewhere overseas. I'd never been out of the country and wanted to see a small part of the world. She said she'd love to come too, but she did so much travelling for work she'd prefer to stay at home. I'd have a good time on my own, she said. This was news to me. What kind of travelling do you do for work? I said. Not for my work at the university she said, winking at me. 
She'd recently been awarded her doctorate and was now in a part-time teaching position. Work for Operation Fido. Operation Fido was her new name for her favourite topic of conversation, Fido being a neutral word with no connection to the crime, which therefore allowed us to talk about the plan in a covert way. Although Jenna had always assured me the plan was 100% serious, it didn't seem real to me until she gave it a name. Even though Fido seemed like a pretty silly thing to call it, suddenly what had once felt more like a thought experiment was now a proper criminal act. This meant the fact that I was discussing it with Jenna was itself illegal, and at any time I could have been arrested for conspiracy. Maybe, despite the name, I still wasn't taking it seriously enough. Otherwise, I'd have told her I didn't want to talk about it. The trouble was, it was an interesting subject. She always managed to suck me in somehow with a new angle or extra slice of info. And here she was, admitting for the first time that she'd done a lot of travelling in preparation. There have been times over the last couple of years when she disappeared, sometimes for weeks, and had been very evasive about where she'd been. Research was the only explanation. Where have you travelled to exactly? I said. I can't tell you that, she said. The less you know, the better. Abroad? She nodded. I need a secure base from which to make the phone call. I can't find a way of remaining undetected if I stay in the country. The further away from home, the better. I didn't ask any more about it. At that moment in time, I couldn't tell if she was being serious or if this was just an elaborate excuse not to come on holiday with me. The following year, on September the 11th, 2001, Jenna and I sat together in the hotel reception watching an endless news report on the events in New York earlier that day. Again and again we saw the same shot of the plane hitting the tower followed by crowds of people screaming. I could hardly bring myself to look but also I couldn't look away. I glanced at the TV guide on the counter. You know BBC One were due to be screening the towering inferno this evening. I said. Frankie, that's in very poor taste, she said quietly. It's not a joke, it's in the TV guide. I'm sure the two things aren't related. No, I said, it's just an unfortunate coincidence. I'm just a bit concerned that a few of the older viewers might tune in expecting to see the towering inferno and see this instead and assume it's a flashy modern remake. Very poor taste, she said. Let's not joke about this. I wasn't joking. I was genuinely concerned for the old people, but thought I'd better change the subject. I suppose this puts a bit of a dampener on Operation Fido, I said. Now I'd properly offended her. What do you mean dampener? She snapped. I mean, can you imagine what building security is going to be like after this? You'll have to walk through a metal detector just to buy a loaf of bread. No, you won't, she said. You're right about security getting tighter. It's bound to happen now, but only for high-profile terrorist targets, airports, Buckingham Palace, the Houses of Parliament. No one's going to be looking at Skipton Castle. Skipton? 
It's an example, Frankie. I'm just saying no one's going to see that as a target for international terrorism. That's why Operation Fido is completely different to this. She pointed at the screen as another shot of the plane hitting the tower played out in slow motion. For one thing, there will be absolutely no threat to human life aside from the vague, empty threats about demolishing the building with people inside, which I'll make on the phone. There's a 0% chance of anyone being hurt. Secondly, this isn't a political act. We only have monetary demands. I'll need to make it clear when I make that phone call that this is not an act of terrorism, just like the three-strop group did. This was all getting too heavy for me, so to lighten the mood, I said, There's a customer right behind you. She gasped and span round, and she turned back to me and slapped me across the face. That wasn't funny, she shouted. She jumped off her bar stool and stormed outside. I turned the TV off and put some music on. Five minutes later, Jenna came back. She was crying. Hey, I said. I came out from behind the counter and gave her a hug. I'm sorry, she said. It's okay, I said. It didn't hurt. I'm sorry for making the joke. It's just this stuff on the TV. It's rattled me, she said. It's enough to rattle anyone, I said. Even you. You don't seem rattled by it, she said. True, I said, but I don't think anything rattles me particularly. Maybe I've got a heart of stone. You don't, she said. You've got a good heart. You're a good man. Still, thousands of people dead and I'm making jokes. Sometimes that's all you can do, she said. You're just trying to make me feel better. You're a good friend, Frankie. So are you. We held each other for a while. I had my eyes closed. When I opened them, I saw Rolf Valentine waiting patiently for our moment to end. Jenna, I said quietly, there actually is a customer behind you now. Shut up, she said. No, really, there is. All right, mate, I greeted Rolf. How's the novel coming along? He said. I shrugged. I keep changing my mind about what I'm supposed to be writing about. I'll get there one of these days. Of course you will. You're a young man. Jenna didn't say anything. She kissed me on the cheek, then took Rolf by the hand and led him upstairs. As I sat there on my own, I couldn't help picturing the two of them sitting on the bed, playing Scrabble. Chapter 11 to distract me from Jenna and Rolf's imaginary Scrabble game, I started thinking about the book I was writing. It didn't have a title yet. It didn't really have any characters either. It definitely didn't have a plot. It was a bunch of ideas written in no particular order. It was barely recognisable as prose fiction. A part of me was proud of that fact. Perhaps someone would mistake it for a masterwork of experimentalism rather than just random jottings. It occurred to me that perhaps I didn't have anything to write about. I spent all my time either sleeping at my flat or sitting at this desk trying to write. 
I barely saw the light of day. I was taking all the shifts I could get from work, sometimes covering seven nights a week. I didn't need the money. I had enough in savings to pay my living costs for a year at least, maybe more. So why didn't I quit my job and fully commit myself to becoming a writer? Maybe I'd be faced with the same problem. If I quit my job, instead of sitting at work struggling to write, I'd be struggling to write at home. I couldn't fight off the suspicion that the reason I was unable to write was that I had nothing to write about. The only way to solve that problem would be to get out there and do something with my life. But what was I supposed to do? I'd done a little bit of travelling, not enough to inspire me to put pen to paper. I'd met a few people, but I wasn't particularly sociable and would rather spend time with Jenna than go out with a large group of friends. I'd never been in love with anyone. Maybe I was supposed to do that. Maybe I was supposed to get out there and meet someone. The weird thing was, because I had Jenna, I didn't feel like I needed anyone else. I had no idea what I needed, but my instincts were telling me I didn't need this job anymore. I'd been there too long, three years of working night shifts, and the cabin fever was getting hard to ignore. Then something else popped into my head. There was an obvious solution to all of this. Why was I still working at all? When stashed away in a box under my bed was a book worth a potential $100,000. Jenna had given me her copy of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders to do with as I wished. I turned my computer on and googled the book's title. Several articles appeared in the search results with words like banned and controversial in the headings. But the top result was a website called howtogetawaywith.com which claimed to be the official website of the book's anonymous author. I clicked on it. The website had been designed with deliberately macho colours, an army green background with patches of camouflage patterns dotted here and there, despite the site's distinctly non-military theme. The homepage boasted, After a decade of silence, the anonymous author of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders is back with a long-awaited sequel, How to Get Away with Someone Else's Reward Money. The original was banned in the United Kingdom and unavailable in US bookshops due to its explosive and controversial subject matter. This new book promises to be even more notorious than the first. Buy your copy now. The price was listed in US dollars. I read a brief synopsis which outlined the author's newest scheme. This time, instead of perverting the course of justice in order to go to jail, Readers are encouraged to pervert the course of justice in order to get rich. The book promised to educate its readers on the do's and don'ts of fabricating evidence and how to successfully implicate an innocent party with the sole intention of profiting from reward money. I noticed that the website had its own logo in the style of a burglar's swag bag with the words how to get away with dot 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 stitched across it. The logo featured on the cover of the new book. There was also a new edition of the first book, complete with the How to Get Away With branding. 
all of a sudden, Jenna's book had gone from a bunch of second-hand copies trading on eBay to a thriving publishing venture. I clicked around the site, trawling through various threads on the message boards page. If you thought the book was insane, you should read what its fans have to say. I'm not sure why I bothered, but I couldn't look away. I was still working my way through the avalanche of garbage a couple of hours later when Rolf appeared at the bottom of the stairs. He smiled at me, nodded his good night, then went on his way. I picked up the phone and called Jenna's room. It rang for a while before she responded. Uh, hello? It's me, I said. There's something you need to see. I'm sleeping, she said. Can it wait until morning? I don't think it can. This had better be good, Frankie. She appeared in her dressing gown a couple of minutes later. I invited her to sit with me behind the desk so she could see the monitor. She sat down in my chair. I had the homepage of howtogetawaywith.com open. This really could have waited until morning, she said. Don't you see what this is, I said. It's identity theft. Someone set up this website claiming to be the author of the book that you wrote. They've even written their own sequel. Look at this. I know, she said softly. And it's not identity theft. It's me. It's my website. You? For some reason, this hadn't occurred to me. Frankie, why are you so surprised? Well, you... You never mentioned it. It's not something I'm particularly proud of, she said. As a matter of fact, I think it's appalling. And I knew you'd agree with me on that. You thought the first book was bad. This one's worse? Well, I wrote it in a single afternoon, she said. So the prose isn't what you'd call polished. Also, I'm encouraging people to break the law again, which is something I promised myself I wasn't going to do. But... But what? Jenna spun herself around idly on the office chair. A couple of reasons, really, she said. Firstly, it pays well. You wouldn't believe how much money I'm making from this venture, Frankie. What do you need money for? You've got a job. We'll come to that. The second reason I wrote this thing is I figured out a way that I can exploit this little niche market of mine but eliminate the possibility that any of my readers will successfully pull off the scheme I've devised. I make it sound easy, but you genuinely have to be a criminal mastermind to successfully fabricate evidence leading to the conviction of an innocent party, and even then you wouldn't be guaranteed to receive any police reward money at the end of it. In the vast majority of cases, where reward money is offered, no one receives a payout, even if they've provided evidence that directly leads to a conviction. In some cases, it ends up in a legal battle, which the police will always win because, as the saying goes, they are the law. But none of my readers will ever get to that point, as I say, you would need to be a genius to pull it off and call me judgmental, but on the basis of their correspondence, their intelligence levels aren't high. I'm sorry, Jenna, I said, but that does sound judgmental. 
How do you know what every single one of your readers is like? You've obviously sold quite a few of these. Purely by the law of averages, it's bound to fall into the hands of a person who's capable of carrying out the crime. But surely that would be contradictory behaviour, she said. An intelligent person would never take a book like this seriously. It's aimed squarely at people who are incapable of thinking for themselves. Also, there's a disclaimer page in both books now, right at the beginning, in big bold letters so nobody misses it. This book is a work of satire and is not to be taken in any way seriously. The author condemns all forms of illegal activity and suggests that you enjoy this book and do not act on any of its advice. That's all very well, I said. But have you seen all these discussions on the message boards? Jenna nodded. These people have a lot to say on the subject of your disclaimer. I continued. It seems to be a general consensus that your lawyers made you say that, otherwise you yourself would be liable for prosecution. So, she said, so what? So what am I supposed to do about that? I've told them it's all a joke. I put it in block capitals. I reached over and shut down the computer, sick of the sight of the stupid khaki lettering. I don't like this at all, I said. I really don't, Jenna. I appreciate that, Frankie. I understand your point of view. OK, well, that's all I had to say about it, I suppose. In that case, I think I'll go back to bed. It's been a very long and strange day with all this stuff in New York. I'd forgotten about that, but nodded as though I hadn't. Hang on, I said. You were going to tell me what you need the money for. Was I? Just tell me. I'm not sure if I like all of these pushy questions, Frank. I meant to say please. She smiled. Just kidding. You know what it's for, man. She lowered her voice to a whisper. Operation Fido. She jumped off the chair and headed for the stairs. Wait a minute. I called after her. How much money do you need to raise for this thing? Thousands? Millions? Surely it can't be that expensive. Questions, she called over her shoulder. Too many questions. Chapter 12 I sent Jenna a text a couple of days later. She had a mobile phone now. And so did I. So did everyone. It was 2001. The text said, Sorry if I came on a bit strong the other day. I'm just concerned about you. It's less concerning to me now I've had a chance to think about it. A few hours later she texted back, No worries mate. I texted, If you have the time, I need a bit of careers advice. She texted back immediately. Wow, that's a very fine coincidence. I got you an interview sorted out for a security job at Skipton Castle. I phoned her. She didn't answer. Then she texted. I can't talk. I'm in the library. I replied. Would you mind leaving the library so we can speak? 
She called me back a couple of minutes later. Hi, she said. What's up? What do you mean, what's up? Skipton Castle? I really can't talk to you about it on the phone, Frankie, or even at the hotel. Come to my house. I'll be there from six o'clock tonight. What if I don't want anything to do with your Skipton Castle job? In that case, I'll advise you not to come, she said, and forget I mentioned it. But I will say, you'd be doing us both a tremendous favour if you do come. What do you mean by that? I can't talk about it. I'll see you later. Or not. I could have wasted time kidding myself, but I knew straight away there was no way I'd be missing out on this evening's meeting. I was there at 6pm on the dot. She had a hot cup of tea ready for me. Have a seat, Frankie, she said. I sat down on the couch and she flopped down beside me. I hadn't been round to Jenna's place for ages, but it was exactly as it always was. I wondered how much time she actually spent there. So, what's going on? I said. When you say you have a job interview lined up for me, how did you do that? Through Rolf, she said casually. He's very useful for things like that. It's one of the reasons I'm with him, to be honest. He's got contacts in every possible industry. So I asked one of my own contacts to get in touch with his contact and, well, long story short, someone recommended you for the job. And it can't be traced back to me. That's the beauty of it. None of it can. None of my interactions with the castle and its surrounding area. None of the people involved even know who I am. I don't quite understand what you're saying. You don't need to. You said you have contacts of your own. What kind of contacts? Oh, all sorts. I communicate with most of them using various aliases, different text numbers, email addresses. Now and again, I have to talk to them on the phone. I use a distorter to make me sound like a man. It's hilarious. All these old blokes think I'm one of them. I still don't know what you're talking about. The less you know, the better. You're protected that way. I might as well tell you up front, Jenna, I can't break the law. I came here out of curiosity because you're my friend and because I'm intrigued by the whole thing, but I can't risk going to prison for this. Who said anything about prison? Look, I know you're a doctor of criminology and everything, but I believe that's where they send people who break the law. Who's breaking the law? Are we breaking the law now? Conspiracy to commit a criminal act, I said. That's what they call it, isn't it? We're not conspiring to do anything, Frankie. I'm talking to you about a job interview some people have arranged for you. Three years of being solely responsible for nighttime running of a hotel should give you a solid chance of getting it. And once you've got the job, because we're friends, it's only natural that from time to time you might mention a few details of your job to me. And maybe a couple of months down the line, I might give you some impartial advice, something along the lines of, actually, I don't think this new job's for you. You seem a lot happier working at the hotel, and perhaps you'll take that advice, and from that moment on... You won't have any other connection with your old workplace and anything that happens there from that point on is nothing to do with you. 
You're talking as though you have a lawyer present, I said. Do you have one stashed behind the couch or something? Do you understand what I'm saying, she said. Do you see how none of that could be considered illegal activity? But you've told me about Operation Fido. Have I mentioned Operation Fido this evening in connection with this job? No, but... Therefore, you can only assume that Operation Fido has nothing whatsoever to do with this job, right? You wouldn't even have to lie about this conversation. If anyone ever questions you, no one will, by the way, but if they ever do, you can confidently and truthfully state that we didn't discuss any kind of link between Operation Fido and your upcoming job at Skipton Castle. As a matter of fact, if anyone ever questions you on the subject of Operation Fido, you can give a straight and honest answer, yes, it's something I talked to you about, you never took it seriously, you always thought it was way too far-fetched, at best it was a pub conversation, something to pass the time, because let's be honest Frankie, when all is said and done, that's exactly what you think, right? I couldn't help laughing. What's so funny? She said. <laughs> well, you've done well with all of this, I replied between chuckles. Very, <laughs> very, very well. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I do think it's too far-fetched. And I do think it's a thought experiment. That's despite you spending hours and hours trying to convince me otherwise. So you see? Yes, I declared, clapping my hands together. I do. There's absolutely no way I could ever be implicated in your crazy scheme because I simply don't believe it is going to happen. Jenna beamed and cheered along with me. Terrific. On my way out of the door, Jenna asked me what my plans were next Saturday. Sleeping mostly, I said. You're not working Saturday night? I'll just be on weekdays this time. The Valentines have invited us over for lunch, she said casually. The Valentines? You mean Rolf and his wife? She nodded. You'll like his wife, she's very nice. Won't it be a bit weird? Not at all, she said. Rolf keeps asking if we can have you over. He likes talking to you about literature. He doesn't get much chance to meet people like you. And as I say, Rose would love to meet you too. Rose, I smirked. Rose Valentine, that's a good one. She had a regular name before she married Rolf. Are you in? I shrugged. Sure, why not? It will be weird, but that's okay. In all fairness, I don't get much chance to meet people like Rolf and Rose. You'll have to tell them I'm vegan. They know already. Rolf knows everything about you. It's a date then. Chapter 13 
I was working every night the following week. The job interview was Wednesday lunchtime, bang in the middle of my sleep. What was worse, I had to fill in a bunch of forms at a recruitment agency the previous day, which meant going to Skipton twice. I told Jenna I didn't want to take the bus, which was two hours each way. She hired a car for me to drive. Clearly, she was very eager for me to get to this interview on time. At the recruitment agency, the woman who took my details remarked how unusual it was for them to do things this way round. You usually have to sign up before you put you forward for an interview. With you, we got a personal recommendation, putting you forward for this security job, insisting that we got straight onto it. That is unusual, I agreed. Do you know who it was? I'm surprised you don't know, she said. Well, I think I might, but... Mohammed Akbar, she said, checking her notes. Oh, I hadn't been expecting that, but tried my best to pretend otherwise. Mohammed was my boss at the hotel for the first year of my employment before he took on a senior management role in a different hotel chain. Good old Mo, I said, not entirely convincingly. He's done you a glowing reference already, she said. I remember that I once referred to Jenna as my sister when Mohammed asked me about her. I wondered if this came up when Jenna was tracking him down, if, indeed, Jenna had been directly involved in this transaction. It was a struggle to stay awake during the drive to Skipton the following day. I was half asleep during the interview and reeled off my rehearsed clichés like a bored robot. Can-do attitude, strong work ethic... Thrive as part of a team. I somehow managed to make it home. As my head hit the pillow, my final thought was, never mind, I didn't really want the job anyway. Then, a couple of hours into my sleep, my phone went off. For some reason, I decided to answer it. It was Nadia, my new boss, offering me the job. I grumbled a quick, thank you, and fell asleep again. During Friday's sleep, I was awoken by the doorbell. I was guessing it had to be important. No one ever casually popped over to my place. Either someone had sent me a parcel or the building was on fire. I answered the door just in case it was the latter. At the door was a woman who was about the same age as me, but she somehow had the look of someone who'd been working in her job for 20 years or more. Hello, Mr Burton, she said. I'm... Mr. Valentine's PA. I wasn't entirely sure what a PA was. I decided not to ask. She handed me a bag with a carefully folded suit inside. Your clothes, for tomorrow, she said. Tomorrow? Your lunch appointment, with Mr. Valentine. Appointment? I said I thought it was a social visit. The woman nodded patiently. I manage his social diary as well as his business one. Right, is it normal this sort of thing? Providing suits for his lunch guests? Not necessarily. Mr Valentine mentioned you may not have a suit and didn't want you to feel underdressed seen as he'll be wearing one. He wears a business suit on a Saturday afternoon? She considered the question. It's more of a casual suit, she said. Casual suit, I repeated. Well, 
Thanks for helping me out here, I really am way out of my depth. Glad to be of help, Mr Burton. I must be going. After three hours sleep on Saturday morning, Jenna arrived to pick me up. I'd only got out of bed ten minutes before but managed to brush my teeth and climb into my suit. Actually, I made the mistake of putting the suit on first so I ended up with a toothpaste mark on the lapel. In my defence, it was a great looking toothpaste stain. It had stripes on and everything. I liked the suit. It was comfortable and just the right size. Maybe I'd start wearing suits in day-to-day -day life after this. You don't need to be nervous, Jenna advised me as we drove. I'm not, I said. Just be yourself. I'm always myself. If anyone's nervous, it's you. I don't get nervous, she bellowed. I can tell you're nervous when your voice gets loud. You're deafening me right now. Okay, she said quietly. Is that better? It's a good volume, thanks. She turned on the radio. We listened to Beethoven the rest of the way. Rolf and Rose lived somewhere in the Cheshire countryside. The first thing we saw of the house was the massive set of gates which Jenna opened with a key card. Once through the gate, I got a proper look at the house. It was the sort of home I'd only ever seen on the TV. It seemed more suited to Los Angeles than Northwest England. There was even an outdoor pool visible through a side gate. We parked out the front. Rolf and Rose came out to greet us at the doorstep. Rolf had a large bunch of flowers in his hands for Jenna. Jenna whipped out a massive bunch of her own and handed them to Rose. They double kissed each other. Was I supposed to do a double kiss too? I went in for a handshake but ended up getting a double kiss from both of them which actually felt quite nice. Maybe I'd start doing double kisses to everyone I know as well. It could be my new thing. We sat in their conservatory where the housekeeper served us the best cup of coffee I've ever tasted. Before I forget, said Rolf, these are for you, Freck. He handed me a pair of hardback books, which looked a few decades old. The Glass Bees by Ernst Junger and The Train Was On Time by Heinrich Boll. Classics of 20th century German literature, he explained. A little bit of inspiration for you. Wow, I said, thanks, Rolf. I feel like I should have got you something. Rolf shook his head violently. Absolutely not, Frank. You are our gift. Oh, well, in that case, you're welcome. He threw back his head and laughed like an evil genius. So, what kind of writer are you, Frank? said Rose. I haven't really decided yet, I said. I'm experimenting at the moment, just sitting down and seeing what comes out. You're definitely thinking along the right lines, said Rolf. Don't stop. Keep on experimenting. The greatest writers are always the experimenters. You'll like the glass bees in particular for that. Younger just throws everything in there, a bit of science fiction, a bit of memoir, a little ramble off to somewhere else. It reads like a journey through a man's mind. Sounds great. We sat down to a three-course lunch with conversation flowing the whole time, 
largely dominated by Rolf, who I realised had a strange habit of leaping from one subject to another. I'd always liked him, but by the time we got to dessert, I was starting to wish he didn't enjoy the sound of his own voice so much. He noticed me peering up at the photo of the two of them on the wall. In the pictures, Rolf and Rose were dressed in extravagant, regal-looking costumes with long, flowing robes. Rose was all in white, and Rolf was all in black. They wore matching crowns. Trying to figure it out, he said. It's a puzzle, isn't it? Fancy dress party, I said. Rolf roared with laughter again. <laughs> you could say that, I suppose. It's from our wedding, Rose explained. Oh, I said. Not what you'd call traditional outfits, said Rolf. What are you supposed to be? We're chess pieces. It was a chess-themed wedding. So we were the king and queen. Rose's father was the white king. My mother, the black queen. My best man was a bishop. Bridesmaids were knights and rooks. Everyone else, the entire congregation, was dressed in matching pawn outfits. To say our choice of theme was controversial was an understatement. You know how families are. So many different objections of all sides. Rooks and knights are not feminine enough. Why was my mother dressed as the black queen? It looks like she should be marrying me. Surely the black king and white queen are supposed to be killing each other? And who made the best man a bishop? He looks like he ought to be conducting the ceremony. And as for everyone being pawns, well, that's how it feels, Rolf. It feels like we're all pawns in your game. What kind of game are you playing with? On and on it went, but we weren't to be put off. This was our wedding. We wanted it exactly this way. For one thing, chess has always been a big part of our lives. As a matter of fact, we met at the Chess Society at Cambridge. That's nice, I said. And so we insisted on chess being the theme. The ceremony took place on a giant chessboard with opposing sets of pieces on either side. Then we moved through a carefully orchestrated set of moves, which took us all hours to rehearse beforehand, culminating in a checkmate, in which the Black King comes face to face with the White Queen, and from that position we exchange rings and our marriage vows, and finally we kissed. It was beautiful, the most beautiful day. Yeah, it does sound interesting, I said. Rolf proceeded to recall in minute detail how he figured out all the moves for the ceremony, how the father of the bride could effectively lead Rose down the aisle, and how Rolf would end up with his bishop by his side, yet still be in a checkmate position. This story must have taken at least 20 minutes, during which time he barely paused for breath. Then, with no real warning, Rolf decided to change the subject. He started talking about his keen interest in meteorology. In an effort to steer the conversation away from our host for a while, I waited for the briefest possible pause before asking, 
So, how did the three of you meet? Now that's an interesting story," said Rob. A few years ago, I received a letter from a young criminology student, asking for my thoughts on the subject of white-collar crime. She'd drawn up a kind of survey aimed at people in my profession, with a range of hypothetical scenarios: what would you do if, you know, that kind of thing. I'd usually throw something like that straight in the recycling. While I'd love to help, I simply don't have the time. But there was something about Jenna's questions that fascinated me. She seemed to have a real insight into the intricacies and what shall we call them, legal grey areas. Perhaps it was fascinating stuff. So, I took the rather unprecedented move of inviting her here, and the three of us sat and had lunch just as we're doing now. And well. It's been like that ever since. I suppose ultimately I like talking to interesting people, wherever they're from, whatever their background. My ears are open. He laughed again for no apparent reason. Ashley Rolf said, "Jenna, talking of research, I was hoping to pick your brains some more." New project, Jenna," said Rose with a curious smile. Yes, very early days. I'm putting together a funding application, actually. Ah," said Rolf. He wiped his lips on his napkin and stood up. If we're talking shop, I'd better take you up to the library. Jenna took her chair in carefully and followed after him. Library," I said. "It's a big room full of books," said Rose. "I can show you later. Perhaps there'll be some more classics for you to take with you." Sounds good. Rose summoned the housekeeper to bring us a bottle of white wine. Not driving, are you, Frank? We're in Jenna's car. I thought so. She poured me a large glass, followed by an equally large one for herself. Tell me more about you, Frank. What do you get up to when you're not writing books? Not much at the moment, I said, sniffing at the glass. Taste it. She said, "It's divine." I tasted it. She wasn't wrong. I tasted it again—a large gulp this time. I've just got a new job working in security. I continued, "It's kind of a stopgap, really. Something to do while I finish off the novel." And then what? I haven't thought that far ahead. It's unlikely I'll achieve worldwide fame with this thing. I'll be lucky enough to find a publisher. Of course, you have to be optimistic. I am, I said, but I can't help feeling this is going to be a tough journey. I just have to keep on writing until I get good at it. I'm sure I can do it, but it'll probably take me twenty years. In all honesty, I'm not sure I actually said twenty years. At the time, I was thinking more along the lines of twenty months. But here we are, twenty years later, and it's difficult not to rewrite history just a little. So let's just imagine that's what I said. Do you have a girlfriend? Said Rose. I shook my head. How about Jenna? We're just friends. Good friends. I nodded. It's okay, said Rose playfully. I know all about it. All about what? Come with me, she said. I followed her through to the kitchen where she collected a second bottle of wine. 
She led me up the stairs to one of the bedrooms. She closed the door, placed the drinks on the bedside table. For some reason I took this as a signal for me to take off all my clothes. I did so, throwing them onto the floor while she watched. What are you doing? She said. Oh, I said. Sorry, she said. My mistake, I said, and put my clothes back on again. Don't get me wrong, she added. I'm very flattered. That was quite the compliment. Let's just pretend that didn't happen, I said. Okay. She gestured for me to sit beside her. I did so, taking another swig of wine. What did you mean when you said you know all about it? I said. I mean, I know all about Rolf's affair with Jenna, and it's okay. It gives him what he wants. You may have noticed my husband is something of an attention seeker. He'll never be happy with just one woman's attention, so there we have it. There have been others, plenty of them. Does he know that you know? No, no, that would spoil everything. He thinks he's being clever all this sneaking around, not getting caught. That's all part of the fun. They're probably naked together right now in the library. He gets off on the risk. The fact that I could come walking in at any moment. And how do you feel about all of this? It's fine. I enjoy it too. We have a good life together. Believe it or not, we're madly in love with one another. Sometimes I employ people to spy on them for me. I have a stash of photographs of the pair of them at that hotel of yours. Well, it's not my hotel. I just work there. I know, she said. As I say, I know all about you. My private investigator filled me in. Well, filled you in on what? Who Jenna is? Who she associates with? All that sort of thing? What else do you know about her? No more than you do, Frank, I'm sure. She can be rather mysterious, I said. I was just wondering if you've uncovered any secrets. Other than her sleeping with a married man, I wouldn't say so. Are you sure they actually... What, have sex? Well, there are no actual pictures of that, but what else would they be doing in those hotel rooms? For some reason, I always picture them playing board games. Really? Suddenly Rose clapped her hands together and laughed out loud. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. This explains the no-girlfriend thing. Good-looking boy like you. What do you mean? I said. Oh, it's obvious, isn't it? You're in love with Jenna. You can't even bring yourself to imagine that she might be enjoying herself with another man. I'm not in love with her, I said. Then why do you think of her as your girlfriend? I don't, I said, but that sounded unconvincing even to me. Could this be true? Did I really think about Jenna that way? There is something between us, I admitted. It's not a sexual thing and it's not a romantic thing. It's impossible to define, but it's there. I've never felt this way about anyone else, and maybe you're right. Maybe if she wasn't in my life, I'd feel the need to find myself a girlfriend or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, I don't feel that need. Yes, said Rose. Though I think we've established you do have needs. I finished my drink. 
Rose uncorked the next bottle and filled it up to the brim. So what should we do now? I said. We could play a board game, I suppose. Do you have any? We have everything here. No children, but hundreds of games. What do you fancy, Monopoly? You'll thrash me at that, I said. You're rich. Not necessarily an advantage. How about Cluedo? Perfect. I'll go and fetch it. She left the room, and I immediately fell asleep. Jenna woke me a couple of hours later and told me it was time to go. Oh my God, I said, I'm sorry. It's okay, she said. You've hardly slept. As a matter of fact, Rolf and Rose have popped off for a siesta themselves. I told them we'll see ourselves out. I was pleased I didn't have to say goodbye to them. All that double kissing might have turned out to be quite awkward after my encounter with Mrs. Valentine. Listen, I said in the car, I don't want to alarm you, but Rose is fully aware about you and Rolf. Oh, I know, said Jenna. She's known for a while. Sorry, I should have filled you in. There's more, I said. The private detective? Yeah, I know about him too. Had to pay him off so he wouldn't look into me properly. Can you imagine that? Having the whole of Operation Fido blown apart because my lover's wife paid someone to spy on me. What a downfall that would have been. How do you know this guy isn't still investigating you? Well, I told you I bribed him. He was happy to ask no questions, and I was happy with him handing over some pictures of me and Rolf. There's nothing incriminating there anyway. What if she gets suspicious again, hires a different detective? I don't see why she'd bother. But you have to admit it's a possibility. If she does, I'll be on to him again, like I was the first guy. I have a knack for these things, Frankie. I'm sure you do. Anyway, she said, thanks for coming. No problem. I'm still not sure why you invited me. I thought you might enjoy it. I did, I said. I mean, I enjoyed the food and drink in particular. Rolf was a little annoying. And then Rose took me upstairs and, well... I made a bit of a fool of myself. I'm really sorry. What did you do? Try it on with her? Kind of. Don't apologise. You should go for it. She's beautiful. That's the problem. I went for it and got rejected. Maybe you just took her by surprise. She did say she was very flattered. Still, it was a stupid thing to do. Why? Well, she's married for one thing. I said, that's not me passing judgment on your thing with Rolf, by the way. I just prefer not to be part of it. And it's probably best if I don't come back with you again. That's fine, she said. And I appreciate you not passing judgment on me, Frankie. You never do, and that's a wonderful thing. I wish everyone was like you. One thing that bothers me, though, I said, it seems to me like Rolf gets off on parading you in front of his wife, then disappearing off to the library with you. With all this talk about chess, I can't help feeling you're a pawn in his game. Jenna hooted at that. <laughs> Sorry, Frankie, I really do appreciate your concern, but I'm a pawn in his game. What do you think we were doing in the library? Well, you weren't playing Cluedo. 
Rolf was helping me with my research project, putting me in touch with some of his contacts. He doesn't know it, but he's been extremely helpful in helping me make Operation Fido a viable reality. This is what Rolf gets a real kick out of, Frank. This whole affair is not about sex. He enjoys putting me in touch with these people. He feels like he's furthering the course of human understanding, which in a way, he is. I know how it looks from the outside. He's a rich, middle-aged German dude who's found himself a pretty young plaything. But really, he's just a geek. He means all that stuff he said at lunch. He likes meeting interesting people and he likes helping them along their way. Why else would he have bought you those books? Yes, I agreed. That was nice of him. Rose is nice too. They both are. I just... I know, it's weird. I get it. I'll just make an excuse next time they invite me over. Jenna took a couple of deep breaths, keeping her eyes fixed on the road ahead. Then she said, This is probably going to sound weird. That's a great way to start a sentence, I said. It is, she said. Make it the first line of your book. That's a good one, actually. I reached for the notebook inside my suit pocket. Anyway, it probably will sound weird, but I'll say it anyway. I kind of think of Rolf and Rose as my parents. I almost choked, half laugh, half gasp. It's weird, isn't it? Jenna continued. But if you think about it, they're just about old enough. They have a lot of affection for me, both of them do. They're all the things my real parents aren't. They're smart, they're ambitious, they're outgoing. What's the deal with your parents, anyway? Why don't you talk to them anymore? I've already told you, Frankie, we just don't get along. I don't love them and they don't love me. There's no law that says you can't break up with your parents and thank God for that. You understand that, don't you? You're in the same boat. I know, I said. I'd just like to ask you sometimes, in case there's more to it than that. There isn't, Frankie. No offence to my actual mum and dad, but they're idiots. And I just don't have time for people like that. It did sound harsh, but I couldn't help relating. Maybe Rolf and Rose could adopt us both. Chapter 14 a couple of days later, I handed in my one month's notice at the hotel. Jenna still booked a room there once a week to coincide with one of my shifts. I'm going to miss this, she said. For obvious reasons, I won't be able to come and visit you at the castle. I'll miss it too, I said. But I think the change will do me some good. Different environment, different scenery, a new place to sit and write. As it turned out, that's exactly what I got. This job at the castle was a new position that had been created as a means of tightening nighttime security after a number of incidents involving walls being vandalised. Previously, it wasn't felt necessary to have a security guard overnight. There was nothing available to steal, or nothing worth the hassle of breaking into a medieval fortress for, at any rate. There were a couple of PCs dating back to the 90s, and some petty cash locked in a safe. The sole purpose of the job 
was protecting the exterior walls from potential vandals. I had my own office where I'd sit and survey security screens. Sometimes I'd take a stroll outside if I happened to notice anything potentially suspicious. But mostly I'd sit at my desk attempting to write my book. Over two successive nights I read the books Rolf gave me. On the third night I moved on to another book I'd ordered online a while ago. How to get away with someone else's reward money. I knew that I wouldn't enjoy this experience but for some reason I needed to see how bad it actually was. Or maybe I was missing Jenna's company and this was as close as I'd get to spending time with her. Chapter 1 was called Selecting Your Crime. It's important to get stage 1 right, said the author. It's my firm belief that the police can be easily defrauded but only in a particular set of circumstances. You're unlikely to get anywhere with robberies for example. It's likely that the reward money will only be paid if the information you provide leads to the stolen loot being recovered. The only way to do that is to solve the crime yourself. While reward money is offered for a wide variety of other offences, you can't go wrong with violent crime. If you've read my first book, you'll already have some idea of how to exploit an unsolved murder for your own ends. But pay attention, friends. This is a different scheme, an alternative scheme, if you like. Instead of making you notorious, this scheme will make you rich. And if you play your cards right, there is no limit to the number of times this trick can be replicated. The narrator waffled on for a while about different types of unsolved murder and their pros and cons. Chapter 2 was called Selecting Your Fall Guy. You could call this the unfortunate part of the plan says the author. In order for you to successfully cash in on your reward money, someone has to be convicted for the crime. As I've said, you could always solve the crime yourself, but let's face it, if the entirety of the police force are unable to do so, you might be a little bit stuck too. Much easier to pin the crime on someone else. Anyone will do, but you have to do this right to ensure that you can never be accused of holding a grudge against the accused, it's important to ensure that your fall guy is someone completely unconnected to you. As tempting as it may be to arrange a life sentence for someone who's double-crossed you in your personal life, this approach is doomed to failure. All the accused needs to do is point out that you have a personal grudge against them and your claims will be immediately called into question. Much better to accuse someone who's never seen you before. I've described this as the unfortunate part of the plan because, let's face it, pinning a crime on an innocent person is a pretty unpleasant thing to do. Unless, of course, they're asking for it. So how do you find someone to implicate who didn't commit the crimes you're accusing them of, but nonetheless deserve some kind of retribution? How do you find yourself a scumbag? to exploit. Well friends, the good news is finding a scumbag to exploit is possibly the easiest part of this plan. Scumbags are absolutely everywhere. Are you reading this book in a public place? Lift your head for a moment. Take a look around you. You see that man at the next table shaking his head and examining his watch because his sandwich is taking longer than three minutes to arrive. Maybe he's having an off day, but more likely 
he's just a scumbag who doesn't deserve or even appreciate his own freedom. I couldn't take much more of this. I skimmed over the rest of the chapter and indeed most of the book. The chapters about fabricating evidence were drawn out in tedious detail with frequent ranty asides designed to appeal to Jenna's target market. If anything, this book was even more misogynistic than the first. A choice quote. If you're a woman and you're reading this, please note this book is not for you. Although you are frequently deceptive, your brains are not equipped to cope with what is essentially a fundamentally macho plan. Elsewhere, the narrator claims, Women are physically and intellectually weaker than men, not just on average, but in literally every single case. Marie Curie, for example, may have known a few things, but the fact remains she was dumber than even her dumbest contemporary male. Any competent male scientist could have conducted her research in a fifth of the time, and also wouldn't have been stupid enough to die from radiation poisoning. The brutality of this particular line, while it clearly wasn't Jenna's real opinion, still shocked me a little. No doubt she'd have described it as a satirical parody of male sexism, but it remained in poor taste considering the fact that most of her audience were missing the joke. The final chapter was called Replicating the Plan. The chapter began. If you've accurately followed each of the steps laid out in this book, I have one word for you. Congratulations. I hope the reward money you've claimed buys you all the fast cars and women you can get your hands on. Enjoy your new life as a rich man. There is just one more fact to consider. There is no law against claiming reward money more than once. There are crimes being committed every day, many of which have a financial incentive. What's stopping you from reaping the rewards of this scheme again and again and again? I'm sure you have plenty of fast cars and women now. Imagine how many you could have if you hit the police jackpot multiple times. For anyone seriously considering this as a career choice, and I don't see why you wouldn't, Please bear this in mind. Although there are no laws against claiming several lots of reward money for a series of unrelated crimes, the more you do it, the more suspicious it looks. This is why I recommend moving around. Never claim two separate rewards in the same city. Once you've hit the jackpot in one town, move on to the next. Wherever you are in the world, there is one fact you can rely on as far as the police are concerned, if you move to a different city, you may as well be in a different country. I know from direct personal experience that Greater Manchester Police never speak to the London Metropolitan Police. I know from having read books about US serial killers that the New York Police Department never speak to the Los Angeles Police Department. I don't know this for sure, but I'd be astonished if the police in Cape Town have any meaningful relationship with the police in Johannesburg, and so on. Claim a reward in a different city, and as far as anyone knows, it's the first time you've done it. Change your name if you fancy being extra secure, but really, you don't have to. You have lots of money now, and if a police officer raises any difficult questions about your past, 
he'll probably forget about it once you've slipped him a brown envelope. If worse comes to worse and you have the misfortune to encounter an incorruptible police official who's done his research and has proof of all the other crimes you've profited from, there is a simple foolproof response. All you need to do is look this man in the eye and say, you've got me banged to rights officer, the truth is, this is how I make my living. I'm an amateur sleuth and a very good one. I think of myself as the real life Miss Marple. Trust me, this man is guaranteed to believe you. He'll believe you because it's in his nature as an incorruptible police officer. He's incorruptible because he's idealistic and has various romantic ideas about the world and about the concept of justice. He reads cosy detective fiction because it fits in with his worldview and is more than happy to believe that a figure such as Miss Marple could actually exist. As a practitioner of real-world law enforcement, this man ought to be aware of the fact that there is no such thing as a successful amateur sleuth. There are no recorded cases of murders being solved by little old ladies with no qualifications. If Miss Marple were a real person, she'd have been arrested by now. Think about it. Murder seems to follow that woman around at a surprisingly high frequency. I must admit, I did laugh at the Miss Marple bit. It seemed like Jenna's mask had slipped for a moment and the real person was sticking her head through the page just to say hello. Other than that, how to get away with someone else's reward money was just as Jenna had described, a completely unfeasible plan dressed up to appeal to a social outcast without the confidence or the skills to carry out even 1% of the book's recommendations. Don't get me wrong, it was a terrible book, but I had to admire the way my friend had identified her target market and somehow managed to give these people exactly what they wanted. Is that what I was supposed to be doing with my own writing? Who exactly were the target demographic for my uneven, interconnected jumble of ideas? How was I supposed to give these people what they wanted when I had no idea who they were? I took a walk around the outside of the castle. I started thinking about Operation Fido. I remained entirely unconvinced that Jenna's plan was ever going to happen. And yet, here I was, right in the epicentre of where her proposed act of extortion was due to take place. I may not have believed it, but Jenna clearly did. She'd sent me there for a reason. In fact, I'd already gathered all the information she needed over the two previous nights. Photocopies of internal staff documents, Polaroid pictures of strategic points of interest within the castle grounds. I posted them all through her front door when I finished my second shift. The question was, now what? The following evening before work, I texted Jenna saying, Delivery arrived okay? She replied, It's perfect, thanks. I replied, So, you have everything you need now? Yes, she texted back. Good, I replied. I hate this job, can I quit yet? The phone rang a second later. Christ, she said, you haven't handed your notice in, have you? No, I was just whinging about my job. You have to stay, Frankie. I'm sorry, 
it'll look too suspicious. Why? People leave jobs all the time. In this case, once Operation You Know What has taken place, they'll see that you work there for less than a week and alarm bells will ring. You'll be questioned, interrogated. We can't have that. I know what you're like, Frankie. You'll end up telling them everything. I just can't face going back there, sitting at that empty desk on my own all night long. You could work on your book. I'm struggling with it. I need to take a break from writing. You'll figure out a way of getting through it. So I'm just staying there for appearances sake, even though you have everything you need. That's right. So what if I took a daytime shift, carried on working at the castle, but different hours? If they're willing to do that for you, sure. This nighttime thing was just a way of getting you in there. Sounds good to me. I struggled my way through one more night shift. The following afternoon, I had a scheduled phone call with my boss, Nadia, to feedback on my last few nights of work. Playing the conversation tactfully, I told her everything was fine, apart from a few practical issues I was having with my commute to work. I hadn't realised how long the journey would take, and spending two hours on the bus after a night shift was becoming too much of a strain. I could solve this by buying a car, I said, and I'm totally happy to do that, but I'm just floating this idea with you, right? I was wondering if I could take on some daytime shifts instead. I'd love to say yes, said Nadia, but it's a nighttime position. I understand. That being said, there's a role we're having trouble filling right now which might interest you. You'd have to apply for it and go through the interview process. I'd be happy to do that. What's it involve? It's rather different to the job you're currently in, but have you ever done any acting work, Frank? I didn't want to give her an outright no, but wasn't sure what else to say. The best I could manage was, only in the sense that all the world's a stage. This seemed to go down very well, it made her laugh anyway. You should say that in the interview, Frank. <laughs> very good. I'll drop you an email with the details. I remember this very clearly because it was the first time I ever heard anyone use the expression drop you an email and the unusual wording confused me for a while. My application was processed very quickly. By the following week I had exchanged my nights for days. I worked weekends plus any weekdays on which a shipment of school kids were booked in. I played the role of Sir Prancelot, a knight who acquired his nickname due to his habit of, yes, you guessed it, prancing around. A lot. I spent most of the day with a broomstick between my legs with a horse's head on the end, galloping up and down and bellowing, good day, to any passing children. Also, because this role was supposedly educational, occasionally I'd say things like, you know what though guys, during the English Civil War, this castle was the only royalist stronghold in the north of England until December 1645. I did raise the question of how a medieval knight could have possibly known about Oliver Cromwell, but Nadia quite rightly pointed out, 
You're not actually a medieval knight. You're a 21st century man dressed up as a medieval knight. I absolutely loved it. This was the closest I would ever get to being famous. Kids were having their pictures taken with me every five minutes. Some even asked for my autograph. Nadia told me I was the best surprise look they'd ever had. I said, really? She said, yes. All your predecessors were professional actors. They cause all kinds of trouble. They hate the job. They think it's beneath them. They see it as the bottom rung of the ladder in the acting world. As soon as a better opportunity comes along, they're off. And until then, all they do is complain. Whereas you've done the whole thing with a genuine smile on your face. I don't see what their problem is, I said. It's good fun. I haven't done any proper exercise out in the fresh air for ages. It's doing me the world of good. I'm rather pleased with myself, actually, Nadia added. Choosing you over someone qualified, thinking outside the box. I'd never heard the expression thinking outside the box either. I quite like that one. Shall we go for a drink after work, I said. I'd love to, she said. So we went to the local pub and we got rather drunk. We ended up at her place. It had been a long time since I'd slept with anyone. Maybe what Rose had said to me recently about Jenna being my proxy girlfriend had touched a nerve. Or maybe it was simply the fact that Jenna wasn't there. Anyway, I slept with Nadia and it didn't feel like I was somehow cheating on Jenna. It felt really, really good. I hope this doesn't affect our working relationship, she said as we got dressed in the morning. Don't worry, I said, it won't. What makes you say that? Because I've decided that it won't, so it won't. I like your attitude, Frank. She kissed me. This is one way of cutting out that bus journey, right? I said. Good point, she said. You should stay here again tonight. Maybe wear your chain mail suit this time. Really? That's your thing? Chain mail? Of course it is, she said. I have this theory that people who have a thing for medieval outfits end up working in castles. We're all perverts, basically. Nice, I said. It's a date. Jenna called me a couple of weeks later. I was in the pub with some of my work colleagues and had to pop outside so I could hear her. How are you doing? I said. Sorry I haven't been in touch, I've been busy. Yes, I know, said Jenna. Enjoying yourself? I'm having a whale of a time as it happens. It's a million times better than my night shift. In that case, you're probably not going to like what I have to say. Why, do you like the night shift? Have I hurt the night shift's feelings? Are you drunk? she said. A bit, yes. So what? I need to have a serious conversation with you, Frankie. Is there a way that you can sober up? I straightened my face. Saying we need to have a serious conversation always works, I said. I'm sober as a judge now. Okay, she said. I'm afraid to say it's time for you to leave. I was hoping to stay for a couple more rounds. Not the pub, your job. I didn't say anything. Are you there? She said. 
Yes. Look, I'm sorry it has to be this way, but I wasn't anticipating you getting this gig as a children's tour guide. I was hoping you'd be one of those people who turns up for a couple of months then disappears without anyone really noticing he's gone. I'm afraid to say you're drawing too much attention to yourself. Of course I'm drawing attention to myself, I snapped back at her. I'm Sir Prancelot. Also, and I'm sorry to bring this up, but are you sleeping with your boss? How the hell did you know that? One of my contacts heard a rumour, so it's true. We're both single, we're not breaking any laws, what's the problem? Sorry to repeat myself, said Jenna, but you're drawing too much attention to yourself. You've revealed a little more of yourself than I was hoping for. So what are you saying? I have to break it off with her? I like her. She keeps saying all these interesting things. I've been taking notes. Anyway, that's not important. I'm enjoying myself. Are you in love with her? No, but... Break it off with her then. Tell her you're quitting. You're going back to your old job. Sir Prancelot isn't your bag. I've spent the last two weeks telling her it's the best job I've ever had. Okay, think up your own story, but you have to end it, Frankie. Otherwise, I can basically kiss years of work goodbye. You know I've spent years on this, right? Yes, I said, I know. Plus all the money I've ploughed into it, all the proceeds from that stupid second book, every single penny. It's all gone into Operation You-Know-What. Okay, I said, well... It looks like I have no choice then, doesn't it? I really appreciate it, Frankie. I know it's a sacrifice. I promise I'll make it up to you. I ended the call. My new friends and my soon-to-be ex-girlfriend were waiting for me inside. I couldn't face them right now. I went off for a walk stomping through the streets of Skipton with the air of a four-year-old who's been denied ice cream on a hot day. The chapter heading from How to Get Away with Someone Else's Reward Money kept popping back into my head. Selecting your fall guy. Jenna had written those words. She put thought into that. Why did I keep feeling like she'd selected me. Thank you for listening. I do hope you're enjoying yourselves. You can purchase the book of Getting Away With It from Amazon as an ebook or as an actual book. And you can also download the audiobook version from frankburton.bandcamp.com is available on there for name your price i recommend purchasing a copy of the book and giving it away to somebody that you love as some kind of gift and also as a way of spreading word about the ragbag universe which is a great place to be i will see you tomorrow for part three Watch